and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force Co-Chair and Brookings Institution Senior Fellow Ben Wittes interviews Gail Lemon on her new book, Ashley's War, the untold story of a team of women soldiers on the Special Ops battlefield. It was recorded on January 19th, 2016. So this is a, a book about, among other things, uh, operating in extreme conditions. And I want to thank you all for braving some extreme conditions to actually uh, be here uh, this evening. Uh, so um, a couple of, a couple of uh, things, and then we'll, we'll get started. Uh, first of all, we have a uh, un, an unexpected guest um, this evening, which uh, uh, requires a, a word of, of explanation. Um, when uh, Gail agreed to do this um, uh, event, I did not realize that, um, that Zoe Bedell, who is uh, a law student and a, one of Lawfare's student contributors and has been one of the most active of the student contributors over the last year or so, uh, actually um, played a very interesting role in, uh, in the programs that are sort of the forerunner programs uh, to the one that Gail writes about in this book. And so I, I asked her to come down and join the conversation as somebody who had uh, a, a, a remarkable and related set of experiences to the ones that are the subject of this book. So with, without further ado, I would just like to start by asking you, Gail, um, for those in, in the audience who have not cracked the book yet, and, and let's, let's start by telling us who was Ashley White and why did you want to write a book about her? It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, thank you for coming out in uh, our Siberian winter uh, to join us. And it's also a pleasure uh, to be here with Zoe, whom I've known for a number of years and who, when I first came across this story, was, first of all, present uh, at that event and also was somebody who I would go back to and say, does this sound right to you? This is really an unbelievable story. And she would say, yes, yes, this is what I've been saying you know, for years, that this is what we were doing and this is what the women in the Army were doing afterward. Uh, Ashley White was a member of an all-women special operations team recruited for combat missions to go out alongside Army Rangers and Navy SEALs in 2011 in Afghanistan while the combat ban remained very much in place. And uh, for your audiences, it might be interesting that uh, when I did one of the first interviews with Special Operations Commander, uh, former SOCOM Commander Admiral Olson, the first Navy SEAL to lead Special Operations Command, I said, well, how was this legal? And he said, well, actually, our lawyer said women could not be assigned to Special Operations, but they could be attached to special operations. And in that gap between being attached and being assigned was what created this team of real all-stars, soldiers who came from the Army Guard and Reserve, largely Army, but some Air Force, uh, some uh, airmen who came, and they were drawn by the desire to serve. There was a recruiting poster that went out in the summer, I'm sorry, the early winter of 2011 that said female soldiers become part of history 
join special operations on the battlefield. And exactly who you think would answer that recruiting poster answered it. You know, a group of young people who wanted to be alongside the best of the best, testing themselves to the ultimate, at really at the center of their country's mission in Afghanistan. And because they were female, a lot of jobs remained closed to them at the time. And this, for a lot of them who had always wanted to go infantry, who had always wanted to go and try themselves to go to ranger assessment and selection or to try to become uh, a Green Beret, or who simply wanted to do something that was at the heart of the war, could not raise their hand fast enough. And they were really different, right? But they had a lot of things in common. And one was they were intensely athletic. They were really driven. There was a lot of humor uh, among this team. And I think what you really see is a group of young women who found a family in a way that we are so used to seeing more stories about people who find their families on the battlefield. Okay, so, so let, let, me, let me stop you there and ask you to address what was the policy problem that led to the creation of... Yes. I mean, it, it's, it sounds like a, like a thing you would do to make a movie about, right? I mean, like the... the, the and all, that's coming. No. The all-women special operations right. force. There were some very serious policy problems that led to the creation of this. Absolutely. And so talk us through why, why did Special Operations Command want to do this? Yes. These teams were created to fill a security gap, and they were there because there was a very serious issue. And if you talk to Admiral Olson, General McChrystal, and others, they would say that no matter how good the United States military had gotten at the hard part of the fight in terms of going out, at, you know, basically special operations missions that were designed to find insurgents and find people and things that were being sought in the special operations war that is still very much ongoing uh, in Afghanistan and many other places in the world, um, that they did not have enough knowledge because the combat ban meant that women soldiers were not there on these missions. And the way that life worked in many of the places where the insurgency was strongest meant that male soldiers could not have access to women because it would call, and they were conservative and traditional societies um, in which it was absolutely inappropriate for men who were not related by marriage or by blood to be talking to women, which meant that everything women saw and knew and understood about their community was going unknown. And it also meant that if you wanted to hide a person or a thing that was then being sought by a ranger or SEAL team, uh, you could do so in women's quarters because nobody was going to go and search them. And so this security gap and the fact that they could not fill it with any of the talent that they had at the time uh, was the only reason why what Admiral Olson's idea, which you'll see at the opening of Ashley's War, about the yin and yang of warfare and how things have gotten tilted too much to the hard side, um, actually met Admiral McRaven, who was then leading Joint Special Operations Command, went on to lead Special Operations Command uh, after Admiral Olson, um, put in a request for forces saying, we need uh, women 
on the battlefield here. We need female soldiers who will go out there on these missions to fill this gap. And they were really following what Zoe and so many of the Marines had done with the female engagement teams, which had come years earlier, and the Lioness program in Iraq, which had come as early as 03. So I'm going to get to Zoe in a moment. Yeah. But I want to I want to push on on exactly what the security issue was. So when I read your book, um, I it seemed to me there were at least two and maybe three distinct security issues that are wrapped up here. One is that the night raids in which male soldiers are searching women uh, enraged the local population and created pushback that the government of Afghanistan is yeah. then very responsive to and it caused a political problem that then creates operational constraints. A second is an insufficient intelligence exploitation uh, that you give some just incredible examples of how, uh, which I'll come to later, but um, you know, in which you don't have the ability to talk to 50% of the right. population, including the 50% in which a lot of things are being hidden amongst. And then the third is a, a discrete uh, problem of um, not having people who can protect, being unable to accomplish certain coin objectives Correct. because you can't protect the people adequately if you don't have access to them. And I'm interested in your sense of how, what was the weight of <laughs> these things and to what extent is that an exhaustive list and to what extent are there, were there other factors as well that, that just called for uh, you know, women to be engaged in these operations? Uh, I think it's very important to state that women had been on these operations for years. But they had been ones and twos plucked from other jobs that had almost nothing to do with it. So uh, there were convoy drivers, convoy drivers, I mean, truck drivers who were leading convoys, or there were um, people who were medics, right? Uh, one of uh, Ashley White's hallmates uh, at Kandahar had, was a medic who one day her uh, commander came and said, hey, do you want to go get bad guys? And that was the extent of her training. So to a large extent, the creation of these teams was simply the formalization and an attempt to bring training and, you know, and a recruit, formal recruitment, formal training, and formal deployment of people who could fill this gap. I think your list of the three reasons that were largely drivers for the creation of these teams is uh, quite right, but I think the fourth one is that it was already happening. And there was a real sense, and you'll see in one of the early moments of the book was, is this an operational risk, right? People who have never been trained for the kinds of missions which a ranger would train at least 12 months most of the time, um, or at least a few months, right, if he's a, a new, a fresh private who's, who's been plucked to, for ranger regiment, um, they were going out on these missions with people who train 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, 365 days a year for these missions. And so there was a worry that there was a real operational risk by pe putting people out on these kinds of combat operations who hadn't had the opportunity to access almost any of that training. And so this was a, a response to that. So to answer your question about the waiting, I really think the... Uh, intelligence and the um, 
local reaction to the raids were two big pieces. Um, the first book I did, The Dressmaker of Karkana, was about a teenager whose business supported her family under the Taliban. And I'd spent a lot of time in Afghanistan with uh, young women who had lived through the Taliban years and had a very distinct view of those. And so I, I had been there through years in which night raids were very much in the headlines. You saw I'd written a lot uh, about coin and this push to try to win the hearts and minds and was it ever going to happen. Uh, and I do think that there, those were the two big things. One is that they understood there was so much happening they were not seeing. American forces were not seeing and knowing on those kinds of night raids where knowledge was critical to not just that night's raid, but any follow-on operation that you would want to have. Um, and the second thing was that you were really making people angry. The same people you were trying to win over, you were infuriating. And General McChrystal told a story that's in Ashley's War about precisely that, that even years into this war, there were still things Americans didn't know, and there were still offenses being caused by the fact that women were not out there talking to uh, or relating with uh, other women on the battlefield. All right, so this is a great segue. Um, so Zoe, um, Gail writes uh, in the book that the program had a predecessor, and the predecessor was in the Marine Corps. Um, I recently came across a weird reference to this program, which is in the Guantanamo Military Commission's legis uh, uh, um, litigation that's going on now. Uh, these were called the female engagement teams, um, and the idea for this program seems to have evolved out of the out of the success of those programs or the experiments in those programs. You were involved in it, um, so tell us about those programs uh, and what you guys were trying to do and what that consisted of. How was it? similar to what Gail is describing, and how was it different? Right, so as you said, I was on the Marine Corps side, and I got out in 2011, which I think is kind of right when your story right. starts, so that they really do kind of back up nicely. Um, I did two deployments in Afghanistan. I was involved with the female engagement team in both of them, and really lived that transition from sort of the ad hoc, pulling people from their day job, to this is something that we really actually should train for. Um, <laughs> I was on my first deployment, I was a logistics officer, and so my job, I was the current operations officer for a combat logistics battalion, and it was incredibly boring, and I was miserable. Um, and the opportunity to be sort of the point person coordinating the female engagement team in our battalion arose, and I leapt at it, because yeah, I wanted to get out behind, from behind the desk. I wanted to be where the action was. If I hadn't participated in that program, I could have done my entire deployment in Afghanistan without meeting an Afghan, which is mind-boggling to me and is probably should have been obvious but is just not what I thought when I joined the military. Um, so I was a you know second lieutenant sometime at some day in there I picked up first lieutenant and they said okay you know lieutenant train train these marines and I was like well we should you know learn how to search people and and that was basically it you know like I thought about what I would want to know how to do and then I trained them and I had exactly you know the one week of searching experience that I had received at my you know basic school training uh, we had an MP on the team so I was like oh great you know Lance Corporal you are 19 years old you lead this element of the training and because we're Marines we got it done but you know if that was ideal that is that's a stretch right so as I was leaving, the first team of permanent female engagement team Marines came in. And so 
I was not the first permanent team on the ground, and they kind of did that initial work of, of getting out there, putting Marines out there permanently, because the other thing was whenever we sent Marines out, I had to fight with the company commander to say, you know, I need this Lance Corporal, and she's like, yeah, okay, but we have a real mission to do, and I need my Lance Corporal. Who's gonna drive the truck? Who's gonna stand uh, post security? They wouldn't let me go out on missions because they're like, who's gonna run current operations for our battalion? And it was a fair point. Um, so, but then an opportunity came up to go with the second round of permanent Marines, and that's where I jumped in and got to see that transition. Our program was a little bit different than what you discuss in the book, Gail, because the book was really about direct action, which is you know, the, 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 Marine, the, the soldiers you were talking about would get on a helicopter every night, uh, kick down someone's door, and take some people away, gather intelligence, and per likely never see those people again. Right. Um, we were involved in sort of more the other side of things, which was, you know, my Marines were living in these villages for their entire deployments. They were living with the infantry units the whole time, patrolling every day, building relationships. It was still about, I hesitate to say intelligence because it's not that sort of hard intelligence that often people think about, but it was information. And, you know, we, we'd say that we're in a counterinsurgency and another you know, synonym for that is population-centric warfare. And for us, the real motivation was there was 50% of the population you couldn't talk to. And that's where my, my teams of two Marines came in and talked to the entire 50% of that population right. in, in the district they were working in. So that was, that was the background and what we were bringing to the table. And again, was, what, was the goal in, uh, in talking to that other 50% uh, largely uh, a, a sort of awareness, informational awareness goal? Were, were there sort of specific senses of the things that you were missing that people were trying to get? Or was it, or was it more broadly just an effort to, to you know, there, there's got to be a lot that we're missing uh, if we're, we're not talking to the whole population? I mean, what, 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 was, what was the informational deficit that you were working with? So there were a number of things. First of all, it was, it was an informational deficit in the sense that we couldn't talk to 50% of the population. But we also started noticing that that 50% of the population wanted to talk about other things than the males, the, the men, right? So the men would come into a meeting with male Marines and they'd be like, security and Taliban. And, and that was what the Afghans thought we wanted to talk about. That was probably, frankly, what we wanted to talk about. But if you're, doing, if you're trying to help build communities and establish relationships, you know, what really people are worried about, yes, security, and more so security in some areas was where the conversation ended. But once it was relatively secure, they wanted to talk about healthcare, they wanted to talk about education, um, they wanted to talk about uh, different parts of security, and men might want to talk about, um, you know, fighters or something like that, but women wanted to tell us that that road where their children needed to go to school was lined with IEDs. Um, they, they, you know, it, I guess there's a saying, if a woman's not happy, no one's happy, right? So, you know, if, the, if women are sick, then you know, no one wants their wife to die. No one wants their daughters to die. Even if it's not a society that places a lot of value on women, they, you don't want them dead, right? So if we could help with health care. And what we also started to see was that it was a sign when we said, we're here to help. And they're like, yeah, you're here to get intelligence. But if we brought women in, they didn't really believe that women were gathering intelligence. They thought that women were here to help. And so it helped establish that trust that everything else just became a little bit easier. So it was really across a, it was amazing. You're two very junior Marines, and you can work across a very broad spectrum of 
concerns. Okay, so um, before I have Gail talk about the incredible physical conditioning of the asso people associated with this program, I want to, I want to, because I think this is one of the areas where yeah. the program that is described in the book and the program, the sort of ad hoc arrangements that you're describing are probably pretty different. Um, who ended up in in the program that you were involved in? Was this sort of in highly selected for individuals who had sort of outstanding, um, you know, physical abilities and, 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 and other abilities? Or was this whoever sort of raised their hand to do it? How, how, did, these, how, how did the people in the female engagement team come to be part of that? So particularly on my first deployment, it was whoever I could steal. And if they were completely unqualified, I wouldn't send them out. But it, literally, if I could convince a, a company commander to let me have them for a weekend or you know, four days or whatever the mission length was, then I would take that Marine. Um, so, you know, and if the company commander is willing to give it up, I mean, that, that makes you wonder if how, how valuable is this Marine to the overall effort. Um, that being said, they had to volunteer. I wasn't taking people. And so... I had people, you know, the hard part was not finding people who wanted to do it. It was convincing others to let them do it. The Marines were desperate to get out there and participate this, in this. The second time around, we had a little bit more ability to choose, and we had ability to train. So if they didn't come in as good a fitness shape, we could work on that. But really, again, it was, you know, who were they sending across? And that, that circle of whoever would volunteer and the people who were really hardcore and really good shape, that was an overlapping, you know, we'll go back to the Venn diagrams, right? Like that was a, that was a, um, a group that had a lot of the same population. Um, so they were fit and, but didn't necessarily have the skills. I mean, when you are trying to get into an Afghan woman's house and then learn all about her life, that takes a certain level of social skills and interactive, um, you know, just interpersonal capabilities, and not all the Marines have it. Um, and we couldn't necessarily select for that, which was often, frankly, more problematic than fitness, physical fitness for us. Okay, so uh, that's a, a great transition. So t I, I want you to talk a little bit okay. about the group of women. I mean, and Ashley White is certainly yeah. a, an incredible example, but yeah. one of the interesting things about the book is how many other people you describe um, with uh, seemingly near superhuman capabilities. And I'm, I'm interested, there, there is a, 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 an almost cultish CrossFit yeah. obsession yes. In, in, yes. in this group of people. So, so who are these people? Yeah. And um, what does it take as a practical matter, as a functional matter, to become one of the original, uh, you know, members of these teams? Well, it's interesting because the way that the, the name of these teams that were recruited from, by the Army were called ended up being called the Cultural Support Teams which is about the most benign name imaginable for really a groundbreaking concept that you would send uh, female soldiers out on these uh, direct action missions. They would be uh, selected in either March or May, trained in uh, June and July, and by August would be seeing the kind of combat experienced by less than 5% of the entire United States military. And so there was this hunt for who's going to be fit enough 
to be part of the Ranger and SEAL missions. And the Rangers were very much involved in watching this because the other side of the mission was Special Forces or Green Berets who had uh, more than half of the members of these teams would go on village stability operations, which is a little bit closer really to what uh, to falling on what Zoe and her uh, teammates, uh, what the Marines did with the female engagement teams. It was less of a direct action mission, more of a village stability operation mission. So the Rangers were watching, and as one Ranger trainer said to me, if you were fit and no one else liked you, you were usually the ones that we wanted. <laughs> because we were looking for people who cared about the mission and were intense, and maybe they played well with others, maybe not so much, but um, we were looking for their scores. And for so many of these young women, we're not talking about huge numbers, right? We're talking about 20 out of six. So more than 200 or so apply when they see this recruiting poster. About 110 or so are brought to Fort Bragg uh, for what was called 100 Hours of Hell. And that was the five-day selection process to put women through this um, selection at uh, Camp McCall, which is where Special Forces assessment selection takes place. And it was a mix of very physical tests, you know, putting uh, 40 pounds plus on your back and marching for an unknown distance, um, plus mental tests, physical tests, um, emotional tests. Could you be put in a simulated Afghan living room and be able to take the stress of having various actors coming in screaming at you and, and watching, you know, maybe a, a situation you would have to defuse? So all of this was part of picking these teams. And once the 55 or 60 are chosen, 20 of them, really the most physically fit and the most sort of able to adapt to those kinds of missions, were uh, part of going to the direct action, largely Ranger, but also SEAL and other special operation team uh, missions. And these young women were people, were soldiers who had always wanted to test themselves physically. One was uh, Amber, a gal from Pennsylvania, who used to shoot targets as a kid, looked like the Heidi storybook character, and would always go out and shoot targets as a kid. Didn't know women couldn't be in the infantry. Joined, found that out, decided to become an intel officer because it was you know, her way of contributing to the mission. Um, and she decides she's gonna put herself into, she, she was naturally very good at weights, but she wasn't very good at running. So she would test herself in running, and they all had CrossFit workouts that they would do usually two to three times a day. The pain train was my favorite. Um, and they had all had notebooks that would log everything that they ate. They would log all the CrossFit workouts. They would do the CrossFit workouts together. Um, and there was this common denominator of really in, um, a drive to be their best. And the, the CrossFit was simply just a way to achieve the physical part of that. And then it became a community thing, right? Because they would all do that together um, when they were selected. Ashley White was known for being this mix of sort of, you know, uh, Betty Crocker and G.I. Jane, right? I mean, she was somebody who was incredibly happily married to her ROTC, Kent State sweetheart who always pushed her to really um, get out of her own shyness and push herself uh, into a more public uh, arena to show what she could do because he knew she was capable of it. And she also would put really 40 or 50 pounds of weight on her back, put rocks in her uh, rucksack and march through an arsenal near her home in Ohio to push herself physically so that she would be better than uh, her team and, and help lead her team when the moment arose. And, and one of the things that, as you started describing yeah. this in the book, that I was really scratching my head wondering, and it's sort of only 
as the accounts of the actual missions yeah. transpire, that it, with the answer to it really becomes clear. Why is it important yeah. to have that degree of physical training and physical capability in order to go on to accompany on mission and essentially talk to people? Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, this was combat. Whatever else you wanted to call it, they were going on night raids on direct action missions with some of the most highly trained U.S. forces and the Afghan car counterparts they were then training. So this meant putting on 50 pounds plus in your, uh, on your back each night, going in, making sure you board the bird in the dead of night, sit in the right place, which is actually not that easy uh, on your first time out in the dead of night in the dark when you're trying to sit um, in the right place on the bird. Um, and then in the dark of night, under night vision, staying in formation, figuring out uh, where you're supposed to be and what job everybody else does, especially the first second, first, second or third time you've ever been on a mission like this, right? Um, and watching men who have done this together for months, if not years and years and years, right? Some uh, rangers that I've gotten to know very well, right, did 11, 12, 13 special operations deployments in the nine post-9-11 wars. Now, they're four-month deployments, but that's still a heck of a lot of war. So you put all that weight on your back, you go, and you can trudge for miles, right, in the dark of night alongside people who know how to do this well, and you want to keep up because the biggest fear they had, every single one of them, if you talk to any of these young women was not uh, getting shot or getting injured themselves. It was doing something that would uh, compromise the mission and make them the weak link and end up getting somebody else hurt or injured or killed, right? And, and so you had to be able to keep up for kilometer after kilometer after kilometer in incredibly intense conditions, sometimes under fire, with six weeks of training. So you describe a number of incidents on mission in, in the book in which uh, the premise of the cultural support teams are, is really borne out, as in you have uh, the rangers uh, identify what they think is the sum total of the combatants they're yeah. confronting, and in conversations with uh, the women who've been segregated, uh, the cultural support officer comes back and says, there's a number discrepancy, there's an extra guy somewhere, and that ends up being life-saving information. Um, what is the consensus today, to the extent that there is one, about the mission effectiveness of these, um, of these programs? In June of 2013, so January 2013, Secretary Panetta and Chairman Dempsey announced the lifting of the combat ban. And in June 2013, um, then Major General Sokolik of Special Operations Command gave this press conference that no one, thank goodness, was paying attention to because I was terrified that everybody was going to figure out this story, which I had just had become completely obsessed with and was determined to figure out and bring uh, to viewers or readers, however I was going to tell it at the time. Uh, and he said... You know, frankly, I've been impressed by the performance of the young girls of the cultural support team. And his quote, which is in the epilogue of Ashley's War, went on to say, and they may well have laid the foundation for ultimate integration. So there is no question that even if America had absolutely no idea 
that female soldiers were on these kinds of combat operations, that senior military leaders were watching and they were getting more and more requests for that capability, right, which Zoe uh, and so many others had proven there was a demand for. Um, and there's no question that the closer you were to working with them uh, on the direct action side, uh, the more respect you had for them. You know, I was quite frankly pretty shocked when I first start now. I mean, you get to the point sometimes when you write about this stuff where and spend enough time in, in challenging parts of the world where you think nothing shocks you. But uh, when I first started working on this, I would talk to mid-level folks who would say to me, oh, that wrong girls, wrong mission, a whole lot of work for some burqa checking. And I would tell some of the rangers this when I'd come back and, and they'd say, did they ever work with them? I said, well, uh, no. Right? And what you would find was that the people who had worked most closely, the rangers who had spent the most time with those folks on mission would say, listen, however I feel about women becoming rangers, they brought value to the mission. And you saw it in the way they were accepted. And Ashley's War is really a story about a sisterhood alongside a brotherhood. You know, that there were rangers who would say, you know, you know, one, there was a story one time about uh, Kimberly, who's a, an MP, who, a military police, and she was on this mission where the SEALs didn't want to take her out. Said, ah, oh, we didn't ask for this capability. I don't know why you're here. And pretty quickly, she finds the intel item they're seeking wrapped up in a baby's wet diaper in the women's quarters of the house. And later on, you know, they, and they would joke about it, right, that, you know, they won grudging respect because, A, they could keep up, and they weren't delaying or slowing the mission, and, B, they were adding value to the mission. And so I think that trickled up, and the fact is it was quantifiable what they were doing out there. So the people it, and the things they found made a difference. How did it skip middle management? <laughs> I mean, Everything like, skips middle management. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would that, right. I mean, you're, you're, right. Actually, you're actually describing a really interesting effect where the, the, the line people who are working... And the top people. And the top people get it, and the middle does not. And, and I, how did the top figure it out without, top, you know, given the middle not? Look, I think there were frictions, uh, as we say in finance, <laughs> to, to, to be euphemistically uh, discussing challenges, right? I mean, I think there was definitely um, an issue there, but I think particularly on the direct action side, because the rangers wanted them there. They had put in an RFF, whether an individual ranger wanted them there or not. You know, there's a story, one uh, CST got there and, you know, she felt she, you know, one of two women out of how many people on a, on, on a, on a FOB, right? You feel, and, and the ranger first sergeant came to her and said, listen, some people might give you some crap, but we want you here. We're glad you're here. And let's go, you know, we want you to make a, you know, to, to, to bring what the skills you bring every night uh, on mission. And just saying that, the leadership that set the tone would then trickle up to, I think, with Excel files that would show this many intel items were found. This insurgent was verified because we had this side of the house verifying that this was the right one, right? So the fact that you could put it in a file and show it and that that could go up to very senior people and that very senior people were receiving requests for more of that capability, I think, showed the value they were bringing. But the farther you were from it, the less valuable it looked to you. Is that consistent with your experience, Zoe? I mean, when, 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 what, what, what degree of um, 
skepticism slash acceptance did you experience and how did it change over time? So I definitely agree that it was, if you were working with female engagement teams, you were much more likely to be <laughs> enthusiastic about it. There were certainly officers or battalion commanders who just really studied counterinsurgency, were very enthusiastic about counterinsurgency rather than just war fighting and didn't just necessarily view this as their chance to you know, go Fallujah style, uh, yeah. kicking down doors and not really talking yeah. to anyone. But if you wanted to be good at counterinsurgency, these were the leaders who got it. But we also noticed that one additional thing that I would add on top of that was that um, the more kinetic or more dangerous an area, the more acceptance our Marines had. Mm -hmm. So for example, yeah. down in Nawa, which by the time we got there was actually pretty safe and quiet and pretty boring, we could not get the company commanders or the battalion commanders to send our Marines on patrol. They just viewed it as a liability. They didn't think it was worth it. Um, and they were not interested. Up in Sangin, which at that point in 2011 was, um, or 2010 and 11 was one of the worst districts, the most dangerous places in Helmand Province at the time, um, they loved our team and they had tremendous respect for our team. And when I was up there visiting, instead of being barely able to get a chance to talk to the battalion commander, he came to talk to me, he came to find me, and his senior enlisted uh, sergeant major, who had literally spent 20 years in the Marine Corps and had never worked with a woman before, said, ma'am, these Marines are like our sisters now. And it was because they had been put, they had been working together in the toughest situation. So it was, it was not just like you have women around you and you sort of get used to it. It was also seeing and having, being forced to see and believe that they were going to perform and they were going to perform to a high standard. I also think there is an element that you know those those leaders who understand counterinsurgency and who are studying um, their craft and who are really doing that at a high level, those are the ones most likely to go on to the top level of leadership. And I, I made a sort of a joke about middle management in the Marine Corps, at least, but that's the thing, right? You know, you haven't necessarily weeded out um, the people who aren't going to go all the way, and some of them are fantastic, and for whatever reason, they don't go all the way, but others. You know, it's because they don't, they're playing it safe. We talked about risk earlier. They, they don't want to take risks. They don't want to put their neck on the line because it could hurt their career. They're just kind of trying to chug along and, and, and move things along. And um, some of those move up. But I think there is a heavy weeding out as you get to the very top levels. Like, you know, people like Admiral Olson is just a fantastic leader. And not everyone in middle management is going to be like that. Well, and I think that's 100% the point, right? The desperation led to innovation. That was the reason why these teams existed. There were, this was not a social program. This was about a security gap. And the Rangers saw that gap, or Ranger leadership, or Admiral Craven, however you wanted to find that, and they put in the request for forces. So by the time that the female soldiers made it there, if you could go out there and quickly show that your count of how many men, how many women, and how many children were in a home was different on your first time out, then you convinced everybody in one night because you just realized, you just revealed without having any idea what you had done because you weren't privy to the whole intel picture in that kinetic moment um, that there's a barricaded shooter lying in wait. Right? Everybody sees the value. Right? There was that was Amber who said there are five men, you know, five men, four women, ten children, and the Rangers had four men. And the difference between her count and their count was the barricaded shooter who was lying in wait for Afghan and American forces to enter. So that the fact that it was a direct action mission um, sometimes surprised people because they'd say, well, I thought women were there for the hearts and minds stuff. And it's, no, they were actually showing exactly how useful they were as, as, a, as a multiplier there um, in bringing knowledge and information to a highly kinetic situation.
Okay, so and a combat environment. We are now out of Iraq. We're out of Afghanistan. Right, absolutely. In, 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 in some notional sense, um, we are not out of the situation in which we will do things like night raids um, up through the indefinite future. And in fact, that seems to be the thing that we continue to do most consistently. Right. And, and, the, and the deeper we get involved in, in, in ISIS, uh, the more of it presumably we're going to do. Do you have, do either of you have any doubt that this aspect of our special forces operation is now a sort of permanent feature of the way we do these things? Or, or you know, you raise the possibility in the book that this is something that existed in, in Afghanistan at a particular moment in time and would would kind of disappear with that particular deployment. Uh, how much has it just embedded itself within the framework of the way we do these things at this point? I think on, there was a real policy debate uh, that sort of mentioned at the end of uh, Ashley's war um, among people who thought that this program was terrific and should continue, including Admiral Olson, who was then by then gone, uh, then by then retired, um, and those who felt like it belonged to a moment in time and did not need to continue and that women were going to become, it looked at that moment, uh, rangers and seals in their own right at some point down the road. Um, so why continue this capability? And yet, uh, certainly it continues. And I think the need for those who are leading these operations uh, is not to, to them, this, the need for that capability is not in doubt. Um, the longer you have that kind of warfare in places where um, men and women live separately and where social constructs are such that, you know, men uh, cannot have access to what women see and know and hear. Uh, and I think for the teammates who were profiled in Ashley's war, it was a tremendous loss. I mean, it was an immediate loss of your family, your friends, your community, because there's a moment where they say, okay, you know, we just want to keep doing this mission. And one of the leaders of special operations who really did appreciate the work they did came and said, I don't have a, a budget for you. I don't have a line item for you. This is a one-year program. And so some of them who had been, who'd done, you know, 80-plus direct action missions in an eight-month deployment or sometimes many more depending on weather and, and other conditions where they were, um, were then in a cubicle five days after returning to not just a country, but a military, which had no idea the kind of war they had seen. And they no longer had any ties to the special operations community because they were on loan from their conventional army unit. So, Zoe, this, this brings me back to the point that you started with, which was that you were desperate to get out from behind a desk. And in... Ashley's war, boredom with the assigned roles actually is a seems to be a driver for a lot of people. Um, what do you think? Is there is this simply a, a, a done thing at this point, or is there or is there still a live debate about you know whether whether this program and programs like it should you know grow? stay about what it is or, or, or contract? 
Well, in some ways, it seems like it's its own debate, but in the other direction, I mean, the FET does not exist anymore. That's not a thing. There's no more capability. There are no Marines currently serving in that role. Not the Marines who I had who desperately wanted to keep going, um, Marines who wanted to go on different missions. Um, even uh, some of the lieutenants who worked for me rolled over and did another, picked up the next FET, and they lost halfway through their workup. They were told they weren't only going to be able to take half as many, and then they were the last ones. So in the Marine Corps, the program is gone. And um, you know, hopefully, I spend a lot of time talking to historians and other yeah. archivists and writing up after actions and lessons learned. And hopefully, that's documented someplace so that one day, probably not in the that distant future, when we discover that this is something we still need, we can at least pull some of that knowledge and we've preserved it. But um, this is what we seem to have done really well after Vietnam, is like promptly learn, unlearn all the lessons that were things we didn't want to learn. Um, it seems, it, maybe it's a little bit different. I, you know, that's just above my pay grade in that sense. But it seems like now, okay, this is the second big war where we're having to do more of this counterinsurgency, population-centric thing. Maybe we preserve some of these lessons. Maybe we think about this a little bit more. Um, but the women thing is new. There's still reluctance about that, and I think they'll be happy to, to forget that. Well, you'll be pleased to know that uh, one place the FETs from, from the Marines live is at Guantanamo Bay, where uh, the uh, high-value detainees on trial for 9-11 uh, have complained about being touched and moved by female guards, uh, by, by female guards, and they cite, their lawyers cite the uh, female engagement teams as the model of cultural sensitivity that they wish Guantanamo would observe, not forcing them to have contact with women. Um, so I, I'm glad I, I can help with that. <laughs> <laughs> can I pick up on two points? Uh, By all means. You raise one is, I think it is really important. We talked on this whole idea of the boredom with the assigned roles. You're talking about Americans who signed up to serve their country, who really did ask only to be in roles where they could give the most of what they had, and to be bound only by their abilities. And so many of them were told what they couldn't do. And so if you're a talented person who is capable, where will you go? Someplace that will use 100% of your talents and skills and ability. Um, and so for a lot of people, this was really about suffocated talent. I mean, as I saw it, right? This was about people who wanted to be contributing more than the roles to which they were confined allowed them. And so when the cultural support team, female engagement team opportunities came up, they couldn't raise their hands fast enough because all they wanted to do was to be out there contributing to the mission. Um, so, so, but you, you cite and you mentioned, uh, you mentioned in the epilogue and you mentioned earlier that one of the, one of the big consequences of this was just demonstrating a level of physical capability yeah. that would ultimately open doors to full combat roles. Yeah. And, you know, to some significant degree that has now happened. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested, first of all, for those who don't know, sort of give us a sense of the current lay of the land, sure. but also, you know, to what extent is that a direct consequence of the cultural support team experience? And to what extent is it something that happened you know, in roughly the same period of time, but isn't isn't really related to it. Uh, as January 1, 2013, or January 2013, uh, Secretary Panetta, as mentioned, and Chairman Dempsey lifted the ban 
on women in ground combat. And uh, this past December, Secretary Carter said that um, all roles would be open to women. And now the question is the plans for implementation and how that's actually going to roll out. Um, I covered the opening of Army Ranger School this summer uh, and was at, Eg at Eglin in the swamps of Florida in August, which is a very glamorous August destination for those of you uh, who are looking for getaway ideas. And uh, it was really fascinating because at the very beginning of the opening of Ranger School, it was, it was awful. It was like all the reporters going to the zoo, like, hey, is that the female? Is that the female? Is that the female? Uh, there she is. There she is. There she is. You know, and everybody's kind of trying to get the shot or paying attention. And, uh, and it was easy to figure out who it was. And then by the summer, by August, you know, we were all there. There were a couple of us down there, and we were all looking at each other going, I think that's the female. Is that the female? You couldn't tell because they all looked awful, right? They all looked like one would expect one would at the end of Army Ranger School. And what you saw was that those differences really did make much less of a difference. And again, it became about can you contribute, can you add value? So I think that was also um, very much a part of the conversation among leaders, the fact that on the physical side and the mental side, women had managed to make it through Army Ranger School. So I think Ashley's war, the cultural support teams, were one step on a long uh, series of steps from the policy uh, and certainly from women in uniform that had been happening um, for the last 50 years. But, you know, in the Gulf War, more than 40,000 women deployed. Uh, in the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, you have 250 to 300,000 women who have deployed. You have women who have received silver stars, women who have received purple hearts, women who have received bronze stars. Um, in Ashley's war, uh, Ashley's teammate had, she actually wouldn't let me put this in with her name attached to it, but we're among friends. Uh, she was, she received a bronze star uh, with the V device for Valor for uh, leading her uh, team through, leading her folks through uh, 36 hours of a firefight. All of this while the combat ban had remained in place. And so I think for Secretary Panetta, for Chairman Dempsey, who had gone, people who had gone to Dover and seen more than 150 women die in uh, those post-9-11 wars, the reality had long surpassed a regulation. And in fact, both Dempsey and Panetta make reference to that if you go back and look at that 2013 press conference. So I think it really is now the rest of America catching up with on-the-ground realities from the post-9-11 wars. And I will say, I think that the fact that half of a percent of this country has fought 100% of its wars for 14 years has not made that connection any easier. Because so few people know anyone who has deployed that it is even more uh, rare for us to have seen a story about soldiers who happen to be women who went to war for their nation and either came home or didn't. So a few months ago, Zoe and I wrote a piece together on a completely unrelated matter that infuriated uh, a gentleman named Glenn Greenwald, who tweeted uh, at us that he called us national security state mouthpieces. And Zoe sent me a note that said, you know, I, I, I um, take a little personal umbrage at that because I'm actually a, a named plaintiff in an ACLU lawsuit on women in combat roles, um, which I, this was actually not something I had known about Zoe. Um, 
this is an area where you've actually done a lot of advocacy since leaving um, the Marine Corps. Uh, so tell us, first of all, um, what, what was the nature of that advocacy? What was it that you, got, you, you did? Um, and secondly, you know, you were out, out already. Um, was this about you or was this about, you know, and things that you would still like to do? Or was it about creating precedents that others may benefit from? Yeah, so um, the, the ACLU approached me, I think, probably in 2012, and I got out in 2011 um, about joining the lawsuit. And, and frankly, when I had left the Marine Corps, I was just angry. Um, I tried actually writing about the experience, and you know, I look at it and you're like, oh, God, you can't publish that. It's just angry. Um, and, and that anger came from the fact that I had watched my Marines work their butts off. They trained so hard. They were so committed to the mission. They deployed to Afghanistan, the, the same Afghanistan everyone else had deployed to. They were on the same combat outpost. They were on the same patrols. And people just didn't take them seriously. And because they were women, they gave them extra crap. So, you know, they had to come back and hear people talk about their butts or their boobs or make sexual comments. Or they just wouldn't even let them do their job because, uh, you know, women can't go out there and it's just too dangerous or too scary or whatever it was. And it made me angry. Um, and I left, you know, it was your language about, you know, you're not being used to your full capability. That could be verbatim things I've said in other interviews about why I left the military. Uh, but I felt like I had abandoned my Marines to a large extent because they were still there. A lot of them stayed in and were still fighting those fights and were still, and it had been my job as their leader to try to protect them and, and ease their way and, and help them do their jobs. And there were just hurdles I couldn't remove. There were uh, obstacles I couldn't take down. Um, so when the ACLU approached me about this, I, I jumped at the chance because, you know, I'm in law school now, but the ACLU was not seeking me out for my fantastic legal skills. Um, it was about the, my opportunity and my ability to sort of speak publicly about my experience, about what yeah. we had done. Um, and that, and, and to give someone else who had, you know, gone through that moment where I knew I couldn't serve in the infantry, but when I got to the point where I went to select my job, that was when the first time I realized and understood that I couldn't serve in the infantry. I, I had known it intellectually, but then what it sort of meant to not be able to contribute to the, the mission of the organization I had joined and, and not be able to do the things I had joined for. And I didn't want other people to go through that again. Um, I knew they could do it. And to the extent that I could help open open that door um, in any way, or just help educate people that you know whether or not you thought people sh women should be doing this, they already were. Um, and so you know, in that sense, it was it was very much you know I I, was, I had a job in New York City. I, I probably wasn't heading back to the to the infantry at that point, but it was really about an opportunity to um, to open things up for other people. So Gail, let's close with the following. Um, you, you've painted a portrait of an amazing group of people. Um, uh, one of them does not survive the book. Um, and a lot of them you describe as leaving this relatively brief deployment and going back to the National Guard jobs that they had been so eager to raise their hands to get away from um, to you know, go back to precisely the sort of uh, long, longer-term employment that had been un sufficiently uh, un 
fulfilling of their uh, goals of to contribute that they, you know, put themselves in this incredibly remarkable program. What happened to them, and where are they? You know, sort of where are they now? We 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 know what happened to Ashley White, and you tell this incredible story about her family and husband. Um, but what about the rest of them? Yeah. It's interesting because so many readers wrote to ask me both about uh, members of the team and also about uh, Nadia, their interpreter, uh, who is an Afghan-American gal from Orange County. Uh, parents had fled the Russians. And when she said she was going to go back to Afghanistan to interpret, they were like, what? You know, we risked our lives to get you out of there. What the hell are you talking about, you know? And then when she said she's going down south from the relative safety of Bagram to go out on these kinds of missions in Kandahar, I mean, they flipped. So um, there were, I've had so many people come up to me with kind of what I love to call the myths of those who are removed from the military, including, well, I'm sure this is a story about people who had no other options. And I said, well, actually, if you read it, their huge chunk is ROTC and the other is Service Academy. Right? So I think they all would have been also recruited by McKinsey and Bain, but they chose to go serve their country because for them that was what mattered. And so for a lot of them, this was the mission and the team and the friendship and the family and really the love of one another, the, the bond of, that it was forged in war that they would never have again because it was a nine-month deployment, more or less a year by the time you finished the whole thing. And um, when they realized they couldn't go back, although a couple of them did win release from their commanders to go again a second and third and a fourth time and actually tank their careers by doing so, right, because they're now no longer in the natural chain of progression for promotion. They're now just going to keep doing a special operations deployment that nobody else even knows exists, right? Um, so a couple of them do that, but a lot of them they're not going to get another re release to go do this deployment. Um, and they ended up leaving because there was nothing, as they said, that would ever measure up to the experience they had had and to the friendship they had known, to the a sense of contribution to mission that they had had alongside um, these rangers and SEALs and others um, with whom they had served. And so um, a chunk of them got out, and a couple of them are still within the special operations community. Um, some may be taking advantage of things opening up, and as General McChrystal noted, um, you know, there already are special operations roles that uh, are open to women, um, and so combat roles that are open to women. And so some of them are in that uh, universe and will likely be part of leading the next, um, being, being first, unintentional first. Um, you know, I think it's really important to note that not a single one of these folks did anything uh, to prove a point. They did this mission because they wanted to serve with purpose. And they talked to me only because they didn't want their friend forgotten, not because they thought that they had done anything that was worth remembering. Thank you both for joining us. podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.